702. The Naked Scientist. Time for The Naked Scientist. We take all of your science-related questions. Give us a call, 11 883 Your SMS is 31702. Your tweets at Rilebukhile M at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons and the WhatsApp line 072-7021-702. We are with The Naked Scientist and he will be taking your science-related questions. If you're wondering why, oh my gosh, Rilebukhile, I've been asking this question every week and it never gets answered. So let me give you a little bit of a tip. Sometimes if you missed a show last week and you ask a question that was asked last week or the week before, we would likely go to newer questions first, even though we often do take on questions that have been answered because the Naked Scientist has been going on for a long time, including when Ridi Khabi was doing sessions with the Naked Scientist. So sometimes we will get those repeat questions around the black hole, for example, and the Big Bang, and we will take them. But what I would advise is if you absolutely love the Naked Scientist, head over to 702.co.za and listen through to the podcast and you can listen to previous shows sometimes your questions have been answered but do not be discouraged we will come to them even if they have been answered before that's what the slot is for O double one double eight three O seven O two in the whatsapp line O seven two seven O two one seven O two. dr chris smith how are you doing uh dr chris just triple check if your audio is connected on that side Let's just see if we are able to get uh, the doctor. Doctor, are you able to hear us? All right. I think we may have to reconnect with the doctor before we can take the naked scientist. So let's take a break as we line up your call. Absence unauthorized FSP. 702. The Naked Scientist. All right, time for the Naked Scientist. Audible one double eight three oh seven oh two in the WhatsApp line oh seven two seven oh two one seven oh two. Doctor Chris Smith, how are you doing? I'm very good. How are you? I am good. I am good. And we've got many questions coming through waiting for you patiently. So let me get started with the first one. It is from Luando in Bryanston who asks, please ask the naked scientist, how many stars are there in the universe? I've heard that there are as many stars as there are grains of sand. The answer is a really large number. And it's convenient to break it down in terms of how many stars are there in a galaxy. And the answer is there's about 100 billion stars in a galaxy. And then you ask, well, how many galaxies are there? And we think there's about 100 billion galaxies. So 100 billion is one followed by 11 noughts. So you've got a times one followed by 11 noughts by another 100 billion, one followed by 11 noughts. So in other words, there's about one followed by 22 zeros stars as a bare minimum out there in the universe, we think. That is quite a lot of stars. And as you said, it is an absolutely large number. All right. A message that's come on the SMS line 31702 saying, good day. I am Guy from Bragpan. And this is a question for the Naked Scientist. Time magazine selected their person of the year the other day and decided on Taylor Swift. I would like to know, how do they arrive at their decision? Who sits on that panel and what criteria do they use to arrive at that decision? I'm not sure if this is a Dr. Chris Smith kind of question, but we will ask nonetheless. What is the science behind Time Magazine's person of the year? Well, Time Magazine want to sell more copies of Time Magazine. So you put on the front cover pictures of people who other people are likely to recognize, be a fan of, 
be intrigued by and therefore be motivated to want to read the magazine to learn more about them. So they're going to go for someone who's high profile because if they pick someone who's not high profile, then obviously people are going to think, well, how on earth can that person be person of the year? Taylor Swift's current tour is going to gross billions of dollars, they're mm. talking. And so when you've got somebody who's pulling in that much revenue, clearly they've got something to say that people want to or sing about that people want to hear about. Um, so that's part of the criteria. So it's going to be what's going to make a big splash for Time magazine? What's going to add and bolster the credibility of Time magazine's person of the year? Who's a fitting candidate? Probably who are they a fan of? Yes, yes, definitely. And I think um, you answered that so well, because at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily mean there are other persons who are not more person than their selection that is Taylor Swift. But it, it feeds into, at the end of the day, the business that is Time magazine. A message from Tabang. Can we really feel planes with fat and sugar? Can we f do what, sorry? Fuel planes with fat and sugar. I don't understand the question. Fuel planes. Fuel, as in fuel, as in um, F-U-E-L, fuel, fuel oh, planes. Oh, fuel, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm listening on a slightly cruddy speaker and it felt like feel. Uh, fuel, <laughs> okay. yes, fuel. Yes, um, what, what, what it's getting at is this whole question of powering the future. And we're obviously trying to move towards a lower carbon footprint for mankind. And one way to do that is to consider other ways of powering our vehicles, because hitherto we've used fossil fuels. In other words, you drill a hole in the oil in, in the ground, you extract oil and you from that oil make fuels, diesel, petrol or jet fuel, kerosene, in other words, which is sort of similar, but a bit lighter than diesel. So could you make that stuff from the, the, the kinds of things that nature provides? And the answer is, well, you can, and people are able to make fuels that way. But it's a very hard equation to balance because you have to ask, how much land do I have to take out of production for food in order to grow the fuel? Can I still feed the planet that way? And do I still end up carbon better off through doing it? Because in order to turn that much land into a source of biofuels like sugar cane or sugar producing crops that you can then use to make alcohols and then turn those alcohols into more complicated fuels. If you do that, where's the food production going to come from? Well, if you end up knocking down a whole load of rainforest in order to grow more food somewhere or vice versa, you actually make more carbon than if you just dug up the oil in the first place. So the answer is that chemically, yes, you can do that. And people are very interested in trying to pursue this. But you've got to be very careful how you go about it to make sure that you don't end up cutting off your carbon nose to spite your carbon face. Mm. All right. Thank you so much for that question. Tabang, let's go to the lines. Uh, Ruben from Deep Blue. Okay. Hi, Ruben. Hi, Ruben. Mm. Uh, please ask the doctor that why when the dragons fly mate, the, the male dragonfly puts its sexual organ between the head and the body of the female dragonfly. Does this mean the female dragonfly's uh, reproduction organ is between the head and the body? Mm. All right, interesting yeah. question, doctor. That's a really good question. I've seen them do that, and I'm not sure uh, what the answer to this is. Uh, there are some insects that mate by 
they actually put a well in the case of bed bugs for example they actually make a hole it's called traumatic insemination they make a hole in the body of the female and then just squirt sperm inside the female body which then fertilizes the eggs inside the female so i suppose it's possible i'd have to look this up so if anyone knows better tell me because i've never been asked this and i don't know the answer to this but it's possible that the male is is putting the sperm into the female's body via that route the eggs are being fertilized in situ and then the female is laying pre-fertilized eggs. That could be the reason, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take this away. I'll make sure I've got the answer right for next time. All right. Thank you so much uh, for that and giving um, the doctor some homework, Ruben. A question that comes um, through from Mohammed, who asks, what part does biology play in a person being left or right-handed? The answer is, we don't know. We know that 90% of the population are right-handed. We also know that this is not a new phenomenon in human evolution, but it is exclusively human. People have looked very hard at other animals and at our close relatives, and you don't find, with a few rare exceptions, any animals that have the same population bias towards one-handedness that we do, where... 90% of the time, we're right-handed. You do find animals that are right-handed or right-legged or right-finned or right-pawed, but you find equal numbers of them in the population that are left-handed and left-pawed and left-finned. It's only in humans you tend to find this really strong bias towards one side of the body. It also appears that if you have left-handed people in your family, you're more likely to have other left-handed people in your family and be left-handed yourself which suggests that perhaps there's something genetic to this. And also the fact that if we look back in history, we can find that our ancestors who lived in caves painted cave paintings with left and right hands. And we know this by looking at the patterns of hand imprints on cave walls that they used when they were using their own hands as stencils that the same proportion of people back in history, tens of thousands of years ago, had handedness like we do today. This argues there must be something about debility that we are wired up to form a strong preponderance to using our right hand. How that's achieved, no one knows. Mm. And people have tried very powerful genetic techniques, including things called genome-wide association studies, where you screen through the genetic codes of thousands of people who do and don't have that trait looking for some particular molecular signposts in the DNA that might point to areas of the genetic code that make this happen. And they haven't found consistent evidence yet for why this occurs. So the answer is, we don't know why people have this strong bias towards handedness. And there's a slightly woolly answer, which is that handedness, if you're right-handed, means the left side of your brain is dominant. The left side of your brain is also where language originates. So people say, excuse the pun, handedness goes hand in hand with language and cerebral dominance, but that doesn't actually explain why it should all be on the left-hand side as the dominant hemisphere in the first place, and we haven't got an answer to that question. Not yet, anyway. Thank you so much for that uh, question that came through. Thank you, Dr. Chris Smith. Let's go to the Lions. Tolly Temba in Krugersdorp. Hi. Uh, Good afternoon. Yes, go ahead. Yes, uh, my question to Dr. Chris is that if 
there could be totally no transmission of the dopamine from the ventral tegmental area to the frontal lobe. What would be the behavior in the in the person, and how would other functions be affected? Thank you. Oh, thank you for that question, Tolly. This is quite a complicated question. And what's being referred to, the ventral tegmental area, is one of the regions in our brain where nerve cells that make the nerve transmitter chemical called dopamine hang out. And you can see where this is, because if you look in the brain of a person, you can find the cells in this region are dark color. They're black. They make a substance called neuromelanin, which is why the area they're in is called, also called the substantia nigra black substance because it makes dopamine and one of the byproducts of making dopamine in the pathway to make it is this byproduct neuromelanin which stains the cells black and the role of dopamine has a number of different jobs to do in the brain its role is is to help movement and to help thought processes so when we're planning and initiating movements we release a lot of dopamine dopamine is also involved as a pleasure chemical when we get a reward because we feel hungry, we do something that then means we eat something and feel better, the brain squirts dopamine into the pleasure center and that reward reinforces the behavior. So dopamine is intrinsically bound up in us learning to do things as well. So if you disconnect your dopamine system from these parts of the brain, then you're robbing those parts of the brain of dopamine, you're robbing them of their reward signal, and you're also robbing them of the stimulus to help you initiate movement. And one of the symptoms of low levels of dopamine in the brain is Parkinsonian type symptoms. So I would suggest if you deprived the front part of your brain of this dopamine input, you would reduce your ability to move, you'd become much more rigid, and you'd also reduce your ability to enjoy things. So you wouldn't learn things very quickly, and you would be quite miserable. That would be my prediction. Thank you so much, uh, Tolly, for that question. And then another question uh, that comes through from Kukwano, who says, my aunt had HIV and stopped taking treatment 10 years ago. She recently got sick for just a week and unfortunately passed away. How is it that she survived so many years without the effect of not taking medication showing? HIV infects a certain class of white blood cells called CD4 lymphocytes. And when it grows in those cells, unfortunately, it destroys them. And this means that usually the natural history of someone who's got HIV is the progressive loss of those cells which are absolutely critical orchestrators of our immune response. And this slowly robs a person of their ability to fight off infection until they succumb to a whole range of different infections all at once, which normally we would control without any kind of difficulty. And that's when a person is said to have AIDS, which is the acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. So it doesn't die of HIV. You die of the consequences of HIV. Most people control HIV by taking drugs which interrupt the ability of the virus to grow. And if the virus can't grow, it can't keep on infecting these white blood cells, these CD4 cells in the body. And therefore, the numbers of cells stay very high. So your immune system continues to function well. 
But one of the interesting things about HIV infection is that after a person has been infected for a while, some people, it's not everybody, but some people become much, much better at controlling the virus. And the immune response they manage to make becomes very good at keeping levels of the virus in them very, very low, even if they don't take any treatment. Now, that doesn't apply to everybody, but there are some rare people for whom that does apply. And this gives us hope that we should be able to make a vaccine for HIV because people's immune systems can control the virus under certain circumstances. So one possibility is that this lady was very lucky. Another possibility is that she did make an immune response herself while she was on treatment that enabled her to fight off the virus or at least keep it well controlled for a period of time, which meant she didn't then become very, very sick. But one of the things about HIV is that it generally does erode your immune system over a period of time. So after about a decade, a person does usually begin to get the symptoms. So she may well have been on track for that to happen anyway. So let me ask you then, doctor, while we're on that question, because many people with all types of illnesses that require chronic medication or ongoing medication, when they feel better, they will stop taking the medication. And I've heard this from people who suffer, from example, depression or bipolar disorder. It's not just HIV treatment. What, what would you say or you have read or discovered? The reason is that people stop taking treatment because they feel better, even though that's the reason that they are feeling better. No one likes to be popping pills and people don't feel happy when they feel they have to be chained to some kind of pharmacology. People much prefer to be able to feel that they are well all the time without a chemical crutch. And this is very manifest in psychological conditions, as you mentioned, and some things like depression and some things like bipolar. Many drugs are not without side effects as well. And people don't like taking the drug because they have side effects. So in an ideal world, we cure a condition and make it so a person doesn't need to take drugs. But sometimes people do have to take them all the time and they prefer not to because of the side effects. And that's one of the reasons why compliance. Okay, and I think I understand that. So obviously the simpler and easier it, it becomes to take certain medication, like now um, with um, some of the HIV medication, it's been reduced, for example, to one pill a day as opposed to many pills a day, that part of that becomes how to make it easier for people to continue to take their medication. Yes, and if you take antidepressants as an example, this in, historically side effects were far worse than people experience today and people found that the side effects the pill was worse than the ill and so they said well i'd rather be miserable because the pills are making me miserable because of the side effects and so there's a sort of balance there more modern medication as you say lower burden of pills to take and the side effect profile is often much much better make it much more tolerable for people to manage their condition